Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Mastering the Room, brought to you by the Graduate School of Political Management at the George Washington University. I'm your host, Steve Pierce. Every episode on the show, we'll sit down with some of the brightest minds in politics, advocacy, and communications. They'll give us a behind-the-scenes look inside the room where it happens, share how their graduate school experience at GSPM helped them get an inside track to professional success, and how it can help leaders like you do the same. New episodes drop every other Monday, so be sure to subscribe to Mastering the Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred podcast listening app may be. And if you like what you're hearing, please give us a rating or a review. Just a few seconds of your time can help us spread the word and reach more listeners just like you. And if you want to learn more about GSPM, feel free to check out our website at www.gspm.gwu.edu. And now, without further ado, here's a brand new episode of Mastering the Room. Hello, and welcome to Mastering the Room. I'm your host, Steve Pierce. Every week, we take a behind-the-scenes look inside the room where it happens, guided by some of the brightest minds in politics, advocacy, and communications. This week on the show, we're joined by Heather Aliano, an alumna of the political management program at GSPM and an experienced campaign manager and communications professional with a love of public service, marketing, advocacy, and nonprofit work. Heather began her career in social media marketing, working first with only passionate curiosity education and then with the National Military Family Association, a job that is particularly meaningful considering that she is a proud active duty military spouse herself. In 2017, Heather made a pivot into politics, serving as the director of communications for Kara Eastman's campaign in Nebraska's competitive second congressional district, helping to guide the campaign to an upset victory over an establishment favorite in the primary before falling just short in a heartbreaking general election. She spent the, fir- the next few years continuing her work in Nebraska politics, serving as a campaign manager to two different state legislative campaigns and as a consultant to other clients before taking a job with the nonprofit One America Movement in 2020. Today, Heather serves as Senior Director of Communications for One America Movement, which seeks to build a united American society by eliminating toxic polarization. That's an incredibly worthy goal at this point in time, so we're very grateful for her for taking a minute away from it to join us today. Heather, thank you so much for chatting with me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, let's start at the beginning. That's where we always start. Uh, where, does this, where does the story of Heather Aliano begin? Where were you born? Uh, what were you like growing up? What was your family like? Uh, paint the picture for us. Oh, goodness. I was born in San Diego. So typical California upbringing. I'm, I love the beach. And uh, my family then uh, ended up being uprooted. My dad worked for a defense contractor company. So we traveled a little bit around um, before settling back in California. Um, and then I found madly in love with a service member. So since then, uh, where I've come from has become a complicated question to answer. Uh, but I always say California because the the beach and the sun and the state just holds my heart. And what were you like? Uh, what were you like as a kid? What were you into? Is uh, did you have any particular hobbies or, or things that really uh, that you were really motivated by as you were growing up? Oh, man, I I think that I've kind of always been a nerd from the start. Uh, I thought for a long time that I was going to be an astronaut. I just love space and love the stars. And then I went to space camp and realized that I'm terribly afraid of heights and that was never going to happen. So, yeah, I I fell in love with history shortly after that and have just got sucked into social studies and political science. Um, Started that love very, very young. As soon as I realized that I I could not be an astronaut. (laughs) <laughs> you, you mentioned your dad worked for a, uh, a defense contractor. Did you guys talk about 
politics and, and current events at home? Is that like, was that a topic of conversation around the dinner table? Oh, no, no, no. My family was one of those that always believed that politics and religion were kind of off the table. So we didn't mm. ever really get into that. It was, we always kept it pretty, pretty surface level with that. Um, and I think that worked out okay. My sisters and I were all uh, have different political leanings and different views. And it's interesting to see that when we weren't really taught any of that at home, that we each found our own way over time. And you, you mentioned, you know, you're from, you're from California. Uh, you went to college in California as well, right? I did, Well, I started there. Uh, when you're a military spouse, you don't always get to pick what college you're going to go to. I think I got went it. to three different before I got my um, associate's degree and then went to Chico State for, for my bachelor's degree and landed here at GSPM for the master's degree. Wow. What a journey. It was a mess, but it was wonderful in the end. It all came together. <laughs> you made it. That's all that matters. You made it, yeah. Um, how, how do you find your way into kind of communications and marketing? Is that is this like a thing where you you have like a moment? You're like, I want to, I want to do this. I want to. I'm really interested in this social media thing. I'm interested in communications. Or is this kind of a thing that you just kind of fell into? I mean, I, I do think it was a thing that I kind of fell into. I think that in my heart, it's the advocacy piece um, and the having a strong mission that I love more than anything. So when I had the opportunity to join the National Military Family Association, I knew social media pretty well, but it was wonderful that they gave me a chance to kind of step up and and spread my wings and learn some things there. And because it was tied to such a strong mission, it's always easy for me to find something to say when I'm passionate about the cause. Uh, so it worked out really well, and I realized I'm pretty good at talking about issues. So we stuck with it. Um, you know, those the first couple jobs you have in your career, in in my experience, they they teach you a lot. Um, they teach you a lot about kind of how to be a professional. They teach you a lot, obviously, about uh, your particular field. How was how were those first few jobs? Um, you know, which we mentioned in the, at, at the beginning were, were kind of in social media marketing, including with the National Military Families Association. What did they teach you that you've been able to take with you on your path since? Oh, my goodness. I, I think one of the one of the hardest lessons for me to learn was that sometimes you just have to slow down. So at uh, the National Military Family Association, uh, when I jumped in, I tended to be kind of a fast mover. I would put out posts quickly. I would create things quickly. And I had made a video for them that went viral pretty quickly. And it wasn't until the executive director was showing it to the board that we realized that I had misspelled a word in the video. I was just moving too fast. And and so it happened. And I could not take it back because once the video had been shared hundreds of thousands of times, there's just no way to fix that. Mm -hmm. it, it just lives on the internet forever. Um, so I think that was the first and hardest lesson I learned in communications was even though you have to respond fast, there's quick responses required in today's 24-hour media cycle. You also have to move slow enough to make sure that you're doing it right. Um, and it was very challenging to learn. Uh, I feel sorry for my boss who had to gently usher me through that and and figure out how we were going to balance my my quick responses with a little bit more caution um but it yeah it's just one of those hard lessons to learn in communications the internet is not written in pencil it is written in ink <laughs> <Yes>. um <laughs> it's a good lesson for any communicator to learn and, and to learn very early in your career um you know, you mentioned that your work with the National Military Families Association. Obviously, we mentioned uh, as well your your being married to a service member. Um, so you could see, obviously, it's pretty clear. I think the the, the connection uh, that you would find uh, in that work. What were you able to to learn there in that particular um, 
or even accomplish there in that particular environment, um, mm-hmm. which is obviously so intricately and innately tied to, to kind of, you know, your identity and who you are and your family um, that you may not have been able to to learn elsewhere uh, working in it for, you know, company X or, or some other organization. What what made that experience special? Right. So my husband is active duty Air Force. He actually hits 20 years today, which means he's retirement eligible as of today. Um, well, well, well. Yeah. He, <laughs> Congratulations he, he, won't to him. Leave. <laughs> he, he won't leave by choice ever. Um, but it's it's been a very long journey. So I I found it so empowering as, as a young military spouse with my first like real big job being with that organization, being able to see that there were people in the world talking about the issues that had been driving me absolutely crazy. So things like healthcare access um, is challenging for a lot of military families and mm. food insecurity and all of these things. I would go to the grocery store on the military installation and the shelves would be empty um, well before COVID, back when we should have had food on the shelves. Mm. Um, so the first day that I walked into that organization, I had the privilege of sitting in a meeting that had, I want to say one of the joint chiefs of staff were there. It was this big, huge thing. And to hear them talk about being able to get access to urgent care for military kids, I just sat there and was just so shaken that somebody somewhere was working on this issue that I had never realized I could speak up about. Mm. And I hadn't realized that anybody cared about. I just thought it was something we had to live with. Um, so it's so powerful to, to be experiencing these sort of, uh, I wouldn't call them hardships, but, you know, bumps in the road and to find out somebody cares. So once that was realized, I was like, no, 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 I'm, I'm nonprofit for life. I'm, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, it's shortly after that, in, in around 2016, I believe, that you also find your way uh, to GSPM. Is that right? Yes. Yes, it is. Um, and any, any military spouse listening to this will laugh at what I say next, but we had moved to DC and I had started actually at the uh, school of media and public affairs at GW very first. Um, and my husband had said to me, Oh, Heather, it's your turn. Like go all in, go get that master's degree you want. It's your turn. And not, uh, not even a full semester later, he was like, by the way, uh, we're moving. Um, and I, I remember walking onto campus at GW and being like, oh, shoot, okay, I've got to go talk to somebody. And um, I think it was Laura Brown over GSPM was like, oh, no, 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 Heather, you don't have to start over. We've got room for you in this program. It's a reasonable transition over. Um, and GSPM just welcomed me with open arms. They were like, you want to stay at GW? We're going to make it possible. Um, so I was able to move into the online program. Um, for political management and stuck it out there. And I'm just, I am so, so grateful for GW being able to have some flexibility for military spouses like me. Like we don't know when or where we're going to be sent. Um, and I was able to take this education with me wherever we went. I actually lived in three different states while finishing my master's degree. And what was that, what was that experience like as somebody who kind of started, it sounds like on campus, um, and then moved to taking courses remotely, uh, which is, I think, not a situation that a lot of our, our, our students have at GSPM. I think folks are either one or the other. A lot of times mm-hmm. you have the kind of uh, interesting perspective of having done both. Um, what was that like, kind of transitioning from an in-person environment to a remote environment? Right. I will say that I, I shed some tears over it in the beginning because I was really worried that switching from on-campus to remote was going to um, somehow lessen my experience or make it so I couldn't connect with people. I was very fortunate to find out that I was completely wrong. So on campus, you get a walk in and you make small talk and there's these great discussions happening. 
But when you're online, everybody really has to take one more step towards each other. So instead of knowing somebody in the back of the classroom, well, I, I need to find you on LinkedIn and I need to see what it is that you care about and find a common thread early. So I have a reason to be sending you a message and getting to know you. Uh, so it took a little bit of effort on my part to, to really connect to my classmates. But overall, the experience was 100% as rich as it would have been on campus. We still had fantastic discussions. Um, I think it just required a little bit more of deciding that I wanted to participate in student life and I wanted to get to know the people in my courses. I think it's it's fully possible in an online program to kind of stay in your own little bubble. Um, but I would encourage anybody to, to step out and see who it is on the discussion boards that they might have a connection with and then reach out. Like, uh, like many GSPM students, I think most uh, you're going to school at night on the weekends. Obviously, you're you're doing so remotely, um, but you're also continuing to to work, uh, and you have you have a job. How was how was what you were learning in school relevant to your day job at the time? How were you able to take those lessons that you were learning in class and kind of apply them immediately uh, in the workforce? Oh, absolutely. So shortly after I moved, I did make the transition into electoral politics and started with Kara Eastman's campaign. Another amazing opportunity that I, I still can't believe that I was offered. Um, but I had I got into town to Nebraska and I had done a social media audit of, of her channels thinking, you know, at the very least, I can help this wonderful progressive candidate um, with her social media and give her some tips or suggestions just from an outside perspective. And I sat down with her and I showed her all of that. And right there at the table. She was like, all right, come join us, be our communications director. And it was um, such an amazing opportunity. And what I, I struggle as a woman sometimes with imposter syndrome and worrying that, you know, maybe I'm not qualified. Maybe I don't know what it is um, that's the best thing to do. I had never worked on a campaign before. Um, so that very day I had had um, my classes and I logged in and I said, hey, I'm going to start this this job at this campaign. Um, and every single one of my classes, I was able to take questions from my day job. Um, how do I write the right press release that's going to get people there? And how do I do a, uh, a live event? What is it that I'm supposed to do with, with the campaign and the communications? And my professors tended to let me bring my work into the classroom and we would take the instructions that we were given for an assignment and I would use it practically with with my day job. So my day job actually became my homework in in a lot of cases. Um, but I think at the end, that made me a much better communications director to be able to learn in the classroom and learn on the job and, and weave it together so nicely. Just so I'm clear, you got the job because of a class assignment that you had done and then took and showed to the candidate? Yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah. I, and since I had had so much experience in social media, it was a, a reasonable thing to know, to do. And I felt very confident about the assignment that I had done, um, looking at her social media and looking at the best practices. And yeah, it, it got me the job. Well, I will say I've asked this question to a lot of people at this point. And this is the first time someone has actually used a class assignment to go get a job. So you win a special award uh, <laughs> for that. That is fantastic. Um you mentioned, you know, how you were able to take your work kind of into the classroom and, and kind of learn on the fly. I mean, this is kind of a bit of a pivot for you going into into electoral politics. You hadn't really formally worked in, in electoral politics before. Um, and we talked a little about how you kind of broke in and landed that role, which is an incredible story. But, you know, 
how much of a learning curve was this? I mean, you've done a lot of, obviously, like you said, you were very comfortable in kind of the social media space. But when you're the comms director for a campaign, there's there's a lot that goes into that. Yes, it's it's social media. That's a huge piece of it. But also dealing with the press and earned media and, and pieces like that. How was that job different than anything you'd done up to that point? How did you kind of navigate that that learning curve? Right. I mean, I, I'm always going to come back to this idea that relationship is what what gets me through. So I had a wonderful campaign director um, on that campaign that would sort of sit, sit next to me in times. If I was to do something, I had to be humble enough to say to the campaign manager, hey, I think I did this right. I feel good about it. But can you look it over and let me know if this is if this is correct? And, and she was always very gracious at giving me sort of those tips. I think the hardest learning curve was definitely working with the media um, because nothing you say is ever truly off the record. It, it's just not. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I would get very, very nervous for those calls. And that's not something that I could lean on somebody else for. Like, it's, it's just you and the reporter on the phone. Um, but it, luckily, the, the candidate was incredibly gracious if and when I made missteps. And of course, you do. Um, the campaign manager had my back all along the way. So it was truly the relationships that helped me survive that initial first step into politics. I like to think I'm real smart, but I'm much smarter when I have other people uh, standing next to me. I think that's true of all of us. Um, campaign work can be pretty demanding. And and that's kind of like the understatement of the century. It's just yeah. like this all-consuming beast. There's never, there's always more work than you have time. And it just, it can, it can swallow your entire life whole. And I say that from <laughs> personal experience. So you're, you're doing this campaign job and you're doing, you know, your first campaign job. You're kind of learning on the fly. Um, you're also enrolled in grad school. And obviously you have like a personal life within your family. You're an active duty military spouse. How are you possibly balancing all of this? <laughs> that's, a, that's a terribly mean question to ask a woman, I think. Um, well, balancing <laughs> balancing is, is in, in my mind, it's, it's such a joke. Like there's, there is no way that I can show up as 100% fully in any of my roles. We've got four children at home mm. um, and do them all perfectly. So a lot of it was giving myself the, the grace and the space to say, you know what, right now I am not going to be able to cook fantastic home cooked meals mm-hmm. for my children or right now my house is not going to be company ready ever. Um, I definitely prioritized the the campaign because I felt fully that we need people in politics who who care deeply. And my candidate was one of those really good-hearted people. So uh, I knew that this was one shot. We, we had one chance. I had one year to get through it. Um, and luckily, I had the support of my my partner who who did, again, say, Heather, it's, it's your turn and I'm going to step up. And um, I had to hire a lot of help. Uh, but a lot of it was realizing that balance was not going to be entirely possible. I had to pass my classes. I had to do my best at work. And I had to just be the best mom and spouse that I possibly could in the time that I had in between those things. Um, but again, relationship, I, I leaned very strongly on my partner through that time. And, and thank goodness that I had that extra help. Well, that's, that's incredible. And it's just, you know, I have done, I have personally done some of those things. I've worked on a campaign, I've gone to grad school, I have a family, but I've never done all of those things at the same <laughs> time. And so I just can't even possibly imagine uh just how you how you how you get through all that and get and get the things done that need to get done and, and just kind of survive the day. And I think, you know, to your point, having a having a, a partner who's there to to help you through that and to and to 
help survive the day and, and get the things done that need to get done and, and stay dedicated to the mission is, uh, is incredibly important. So I'm incredibly impressed. Um, <laughs> You guys, obviously, you win, as I mentioned at the beginning, you win the primary uh, Mm -hmm. on that campaign over former Congressman Brad Ashford, uh, which was considered a bit of an upset, if I remember correctly. Um, (laughs) And then you end up falling just short in the general by a few points to to Congressman Don Bacon. Uh, Those are two completely different sides of the emotional spectrum. Uh, Can you share with our listeners just a little bit about anything you learned about how to successfully ride the emotional roller coaster that is a life in professional politics. Because this this one job is like a microcosm of the highest highs and and kind of pretty heartbreaking lows. Yes, yes. It, um, I always joke that I love electoral politics because it's like an adrenaline junkie's dream. You mm-hmm. work real hard, you sprint to the end, and, and you hope that it's all going to work out. But um, yeah, the, the, the win, we had felt firmly that we had it in the bag. We had run all the data and we had been watching the numbers at the doors very, very carefully. So the, the primary we had expected to win and it's still the moment it was announced was just shocking. Um, the, the campaign family, I, I remember one of our field, uh, guys just fell to his knees and, and cried right there on the floor, which I think is, is not a common reaction, but we had all worked so hard. And we had been told from the beginning that it just wasn't possible. I had tried to to get news coverage during the primary. And I remember one reporter, I don't remember where, where that person was, but I remember one reporter saying to me, you know, we're we're not gonna cover this because you're not you're not gonna win. Um, so they they had kind of, you know, brushed us off as, you know, we were just a campaign that was trying to force a conversation around the issues we cared about rather than a campaign that actually thought we could win at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um but in the general, that was just um, so incredibly heartbreaking. I think that um, throughout the evening, as we were watching the numbers came come in, we knew the first round of numbers were not going to be favorable for our candidate because of the districts that were being released at that time. And we were sure in the second round that it was going to close the gap. And then we thought by the time the third release came, we would win. And the first two followed the pattern that we thought it was going to follow. And then when the third came in, um, I forget which, some national news cover channel covered um, it and called it for Don Bacon. And all of us were kind of in shock. We were like, well, how is that possible? Um, And I think that the lows are made less painful when you really get to know your campaign staff and you really get to know the volunteers that spend hours and hours and hours wearing down their shoes and knocking on the doors. These people believe so firmly in your cause. Um, So if you can really bond with them it's, it's helpful for me to know that the people on my side cared so deeply and they're going to continue caring and they'll put that same effort and the training they got on the campaign that we lost into the next campaign, into more local candidates. Um, so it's, it's comforting to me to think that what we're building is not just getting one person elected. We're building a bunch of candidates. We're building a group of volunteers and we're educating the public on the issues we care about. Um, and at the end of the day, that's, that matters. Yeah, elections are campaigns are really hard because uh, mm-hmm. even when you win, uh, you know they just they just end right, and so you you work so hard and you put so much into into the campaign, and then just in one day it's over. And even if you win, you're super happy, but then you have like this stretch afterwards. You're like, well, I need to find like a new a new purpose. Like I, this thing that I was so all consuming is now gone. And then if you lose. 
that's a that's a very crushing thing. And you do, you know, what I do, which is sit on the couch and stare at the wall for hours at a time. And just, you know, <laughs> yes. It's very hard to show up for everything else in your life for a little bit. Uh, yeah. it's, it's it's tough, but it's the highs are, are very much uh, make it worth it. And they, like you said, the the feeling that you are, you know, part of this bigger thing and do it and working towards this bigger thing that's going to hopefully, you know, touch people's lives is, is, is why we do it. Mm-hmm. Um, in the 2020 cycle, you know, after, after the Eastman campaign, you continued to work, uh, in Nebraska politics, serving as a campaign manager to, to two different state legislative races, consulting for some other clients as well. Why did that feel like the right, the right next step for you coming off, coming off that campaign? Right. Uh, again, this is a GSPM thing. So I had had my, my final capstone course, the one where we got to travel to DC and connect together and talk to all of these experts immediately after that campaign. Like I think it was two weeks later and I had scrapped my initial capstone project. What I was going to write about was how it would be possible to win the entire state of Nebraska as a, as a, uh, blue candidate. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was sitting there looking at that and, and in the, in the loss, I was like, there's just no way I can't write this hopeful paper, uh, when we just mm-hmm. lost what I th- would have hoped we would won. Um, and I got to DC and my professor, I think it was Professor Dalek, um, was, was talking to me and we shifted my capstone from that hopeful we can win the whole state argument into sort of a postmortem of the Eastman campaign and where did we do right and where did we go wrong? And what was interesting is GSPM brought in the very people that had been following our race and had had the data and they had invested in the candidate. Um, so I was able to sit down privately with a couple of them. Professor Dalek set up this opportunity for me to connect with them and say, what happened here? What could I do differently? What were you seeing that maybe we didn't see? And it was just this remarkable evolution where I was able to come home from that capstone and go back to the Eastman campaign and say, hey, here's what I learned. I talked to all these people. Um, this is what I found out. And that that postmortem then also gave me the tools to then go into these local races and say, hey, this is what I learned about the district. This is the messaging that worked and didn't work. This is what you know the National Party thinks we should try. And I had a private conversation with this guy who said we should say this. And um, it really gave me the tool set then to take what I learned on the Eastman campaign broadly to these other candidates. I did everything from uh, commissioners to school boards to state legislatures. And we were, we were, we had wins and we had losses. You know, it, you always kind of get a mix of bag, but um, it was wonderful then to, to take the sadness of that loss, uh, to turn it into something pers- uh, something that would be productive um, and then come back and, and make a difference at a local level. So I, yeah, it was GSPM. That's, that's how that happened. I'm <laughs> <laughs> uh, so sensing a trend. Um, you were the comms director uh, on the Eastman campaign, but now as you move into 2020, you move into this next phase, uh, you're serving in kind of a campaign manager role for some of these state legislative races. Um, and I'm sure you learned a ton just by being in the room and being part of the decision-making process on the Eastman campaign. You talked about kind of the great people that you were surrounded by there and the relationships you had with them and how much you were able to learn. But how does the job change when you are the person in the big chair who is ultimately responsible making campaign manager decisions versus just comms director decisions? What was that transition like for you? I, I, it was challenging because I, I tend to be a mama duck kind of human. I, I really want to provide comfort and encouragement, but the, the part where you have to be firm and say to the candidate, Hey, we're not going to do this thing or no, you shouldn't do that thing. Or, Oh my goodness, you did something that now we have to kind of clean up a little bit. That 
upward management of the candidate, I think, is the biggest difference between the comms director role and the campaign manager role. The data and the field, all of that stuff is very easily taught. Um, you can pick it up in the classroom. The state party can teach you that stuff. But when it comes to the people management and candidates are so wrapped up into um, into what choices they're supposed to make and how they're supposed to spend their day. And a lot of them have ideas about what they want to do. And that's not exactly the strategic best option to do. So um, I did, I, I struggled a little bit with trying to figure out how it is that I encourage them to do a lot of door knocking and discourage them to, to go to some events that they'd rather be at or, or whatever. It was the time management. It was the people management. And a lot of it was managing the, the kind of fear that comes along with that with a, with a candidate. And I found this at every level. Something will go wrong in the media and they start to get really worried. And it's the campaign manager's job to come in and say, actually, like, let's take a deep breath. Let's come up with a game plan. What are we going to do tomorrow? And to keep them focused on the goal and keep them hopeful. Because if a candidate doesn't believe that they can win, uh, that's not good for your race. Your race is over right there. Um, so it's, again, a lot of relationship and people management, trying to make sure that that candidate always has the support that they need, that they have a positive outlook, that they have the energy to continue, um, and that you're also kind of a role of supporting their family as well. You've got to have their partners um, on board and ready to help. Um, so it's a lot of people management is, is the biggest difference between those two roles in my book. In May 2020, you take a role with One America Movement as their director of communications, and you're still there today leading their comms work. What can you tell us about One America Movement and, and what the organization is trying to accomplish? And also why this opportunity appealed to you and felt like something you wanted to spend your time doing. Right, right. So I, I feel like a lot of the problem with our politics and our policy right now is that folks just can't work together. If, if you're from the other team, we, we don't want to sit down and work together. So when I saw this job opportunity with the One America Movement, I had gotten both exhausted from cycle work. And like you said before, when you lose, you've got to figure out what in the world it is that you're going to do next. So cycle work was exhausting. And it also was frustrating to me that the, the ends justified the means in, in all sorts of cases. So watching both my candidates and their competitors coming at each other with, with things that were sensationalized or just not true or, or straight up mean, that's that's electoral politics. You've got to do that stuff. But I'm a mother duck and I, I really want to believe that the world is a, is a good and positive place. So at the One America Movement, what they do is they both build resilience to toxic polarization by uh, working with faith leaders, educating them and, and supporting them and building networks of faith leaders who are trying to reduce division. And then they also bring together faith communities across divides um, to come together and do meaningful work in their communities. So we've got congregations in West Virginia that are working to fight the opioid epidemic together. Um, we've got congregations in the D.C. area that are working to support the Afghan refugees right now. Um, we've had hurricane response groups, all of these different groups doing different things. Um, and and it's, it's just remarkable to be able to sit in a room with a pastor and a rabbi and watch them talk together about different issues and their different faiths and do it in a respectful way. Um, it's really remarkable, hopeful work um, <laughs> that I am completely humbled to be a part of. Yeah, as a, as a both a religious person and a political person, it sounds like uh, a sorely needed uh, a sorely needed mission and, and, and incredibly fulfilling work. Um, what do you find most rewarding about that work that you're doing at the One America Movement? If we're gonna 
let's say we're going to have this conversation again, you know, 10 to 15 years from now. Mm-hmm. What would you hope to be able to say that you all were able to leave behind as a result of this really important work you're doing right now? Right. So the the problem with toxic polarization is that it really creates this never-ending cycle and it becomes about identity. Like, who who are you? You are a Trump supporter. I'm a Biden supporter. We're totally different. It becomes identity-based rather than issues-based. And that then stops us from being able to accomplish anything. It increases extremism and violence and hate and all of these horrible things. Um, so the most sort of fulfilling part for me is uh, just recently I had the opportunity to go to Chicago and join a Muslim community and a Christian community that were coming together to ask each other those hard questions that they were afraid to ask. So they wrote down on, on little cards what it was that they had wanted to say to the other group. And then they passed around the microphone to answer questions. And when they came into the room, you kind of saw that they were standing in their own groups and they were talking quietly and everybody seemed so nervous to come together. But by the end of the night, they were mixed up at their tables. They were laughing and joking together. And these groups that never would have thought that they could do something together now were making plans to, to help the Af- Afghan refugees in their community. Um, and that's just remarkable to me to watch two groups who think they have nothing in common. One of the groups was evangelical and, and very conservative. And the other group was Muslim and, and completely different. Um, but at the end of the day, they found common ground. And that common ground was that they cared about these refugees getting settled and having what they need to have a successful life here in the United States. So what I hope to see 10 years from now is that we've kind of cleared some of these log jams and we've kind of reduced that, that stubbornness that comes with the idea of, no, I can't work with the other side and there is no negotiation, all of these things, um, and start to see people working together to solve problems. I'm just hoping that, you know, 10 years from now, we're finally starting to work together and, and make some progress on these big issues in our country. We've, we've got to solve these problems. This shouldn't come as, as any surprise to you, given the kind of the work that you're doing right now and that you're, you know, totally ensconced in. But trust in institutions generally is at an all time low, um, yep. particularly among young people. Uh, and, you know, that's obviously particularly true of uh, government and politics. Uh, I don't think that's going to be a surprise to anyone, but it's it's, it's bigger than that, too. It's it's business and, and, and all institutions in public life um, that trust is just eroded. What advice would you give to a young person on a, you know, why they should even bother to get involved with these institutions, especially, you know, in in government and public life, politics? Um, why do they? Why should they even care enough to get involved if they, you know, don't trust the, these institutions to begin with? And b, if they were going to get involved, you know, how could they do that? What's the best way for them to contribute, to participate in our democracy, to to make things better? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. So in terms of eroding trust in institutions, um, the One America Movement, we we recognize that that's a huge driver of misinformation and conspiracy theories and, and division in our country is this lack of trust. And what we say about that is if you can't trust the institution, find a person that you can trust. So that might be that we start to talk to our neighbors and build trust with them. It might be that we start to talk to our local political leaders and Get a coffee meeting with one of them and and see where you can go with that. Reach out to your religious leaders or uh, civic leaders in your community, whoever it is. Start to build trust one person at a time. Um, And that way you can can start to make some motion forward. But at a a bigger level, nothing is ever going to change if we don't get folks in these seats that are going to be willing to tackle the issues rather than fight over identity. Nothing will change. So 
in order to to make that happen, uh, you got to run for office. You've got to volunteer for a campaign. Uh, you've got to go find a job with an organization that has a mission you can stand behind. Whatever it is, just find a way to to get your hands busy um, and use your time to change this world for the better. Um, because disengaging won't get us anywhere. It's it's you've got to step up. You've got to be in the room. You've got to make it happen. Um, so yeah, my my suggestion would be to start very small. Start in your local community because you'll see the results much faster there, um, and then move up from from that spot. But we need we need good school teachers. We need good school board members. We need good politicians in our towns. Um, so I would suggest starting small. And I think that once you do start talking to candidates and and people in public office, a lot of them have really good hearts and they've got really good ideas and. We can encourage them to be good, upstanding moral leaders. We can ask them to, to do hard things and stand up for what's right when it's not popular. Um, but those folks in leadership need to hear from people like us and, and young folks that are that are sick and tired of the system. Last question. There are a lot of opinions about what makes for a successful career. In your experience, what have you found to be most important? Is it what you know or who you know, or is it some combination of both? Uh, it's it's got to be some combination of both. Um, r- relationship is is the thing that's going to get you the farthest. So in your classes, get to know your other classmates. I've got folks on my LinkedIn from across the country from the program that I can send a message to if I'm headed to their city and see what's going on. Um, a lot of the jobs that I've had as, as a military spouse, you just don't have a network on the ground. Um, so you show up in a town, you know no one. So there is a a section of this where you have to have confidence in your abilities and you need to be ready to walk in and own the room and say, you know, I have a right to be here. I deserve to be here. You might not know me, but I'm going to knock your socks right off. Um, So you've got to be ready to do that. But whenever possible, it's so much easier when you can have an advocate who's going to help you make those right connections and introduce you to the right people or just have your back when you say, hey, I'm going to do this new thing. And they'll say to you, you know what? I know you, I know you're capable. So you've got to have cheerleaders behind you, people advocating for you and the confidence to walk into the room and know that you belong there. Wise words from a wise person, Heather Aliano. Thank you so much, Heather, for taking the time to join us today. Your journey is fascinating and different than than everyone else that we've ever talked to. And, and I was truly a pleasure for me to get to walk that path and microcosm here with you for a few minutes. I'm sure our audience feels the same. So thank you so much for taking the time. Yes. Thank you for having me. This was wonderful. 